Hello and welcome to the St. Emelins Podcast. I'm Simon Carley and today I'm going to be taking you through the papers from September. Now I know it's already October and we're a little bit late with this, but that's because we've been busy with the St. Emelins Conference and with the Teaching Co-op course, both of which have gone fabulously. We've had a really great time here in Manchester and you'll hear a little bit more about those in the future and our plans for next year, of course. So I'm going to take you through what we did in September. Now we're going to kick off with a Journal Club paper on two papers from Ashley Liebig looking at the management of the airway in cardiac arrest. And there were two papers, very, very well-anticipated papers. We've been looking forward to seeing these. The first is the Airways 2 study, which was published in JAMA in August of this year. And this is a UK paper where they looked at over 9,000 patients in the pre-hospital environment with cardiac arrest. And they, they excluded some of the patients who had just you know, got a couple of shocks and returned to, uh, got a ROSC. But in those group of patients who didn't immediately recover with either BLS or early defibrillation, they randomised them into either getting a supraglottic airway or an endotracheal tube. And they looked at these patients and followed them up over a period of time. Now, interestingly, and perhaps predictably, because I think we have thought about this for some time, is that there was no real difference in the group who got endotracheal intubation versus a supraglossic device. So in terms of outcome, those patients who had a favourable outcome, at the end of the follow-up, they really didn't find a huge difference between the patients who were given the laryngeal mask airway versus that group who had an intubation. Now that's interesting, it's a bit controversial because people have often wanted to do intubation in patients who've got cardiac arrest, it feels the right thing to do. But this would suggest that there isn't a huge difference between those two strategies. Now, there's been lots of debate about this, and you can follow the debate and some of the links that we've got on the site. I thought one of the most interesting things I saw come back from this was, I think from Per Bredmos, or certainly one of the Scandinavian team who runs ScanCrit, that it's not necessarily what the airway is that you put in, but it's what you do once it's in. One of the big risks, of course, in cardiac arrest management is that we overventilate our patients, and that might be easier to do if you've got an endotracheal tube in. So... I think the evidence for pre-hospital is it probably doesn't make a huge amount of difference, but actually it's another another way of thinking about cardiac arrest that we need to be mindful of, of the combination of interventions, just the airway plus the respiratory effects as well. Um, what does it mean for us? It probably means that our first choice is going to be what's ever easiest and quickest to get down. That's probably going to be a supraglottic airway. However, in my practice, if we're going to be doing prolonged arrests or they're complex or I have to particularly manage the the ventilation in a very precise way, then I'm going to convert to an endotracheal tube because, quite frankly, there's no advantage to either. So it seems to suggest that either is acceptable. And certainly in the ED practice, where we may want to secure the airway in a prolonged arrest, I think that's where we're going to go. Now, there's also a paper there published in JAMA, which is, again, another randomized control trial looking at endotracheal intubation versus a laryngeal tube. This is a US study. And again, they didn't really find any significant advantage to the endotracheal tube. And in fact, there's a signal within here that there may be a, a benefit. And the outcomes are slightly different in, the, in, the, in, this, in this paper as compared to the Airways 2 trial. There may be a slight benefit to the laryngeal tube. Now, again, what does it mean to us? Well, these are pre-hospital papers. I think it means our strategy is going to stay the same, that we'll probably get the, the best air we can quickly. We may well still convert to an endotracheal tube if we feel it's appropriate, because I'm not sure that we've clearly defined that as an advantage to a supraglottic airway. So that's worth a read because it's obviously fundamental to what we do as resuscitationists. And there's a lot more detail on the site than I've just talked about now. Now, what else do we do? We had a great post from Stefan Brugens, who's a great friend of ours from South Africa, who's now currently working in the UK. 
And he just asked us to stop and think about what we do in terms of our responsibilities to the wider global community of clinicians and also the people we work with. And this is a quite a challenging post, actually, about how we may feel that we are completely aware about equality and diversity issues, but we're perhaps not. So Stefan writes from his own personal perspective about his experiences of growing up in South Africa, but he also points us in the direction of how we can improve and in particular points us towards a great presentation that was done in SMAC from Annette Alenio on moving towards togetherness. And again, if you've not seen that, and we've put the video up on the site, I think you definitely should do that. If you're interested in global health, and I know many people are, I think you need to have a look at this to get a perspective of where he's coming from and how we can help across the world. Then we moved into one of the biggest activities that the St. Emelins team got up to over the September period, and that was the USEM conference. So it's a combined conference, the European Society of Emergency Medicine and the Royal College of Emergency Medicine up in Glasgow. It was a tremendous event. I mean, I've got to say, I love the USEM conferences. It's, it's really diverse, and I always learn things new because the health economies in Europe are so varied that you always meet people who are doing something completely different. Now, uh, quite a few of us had posts and presentations up there and Dan Horner got us out first with a really interesting presentation on the treatment of massive PE. Now we've talked about this on the blog before and I know that Ian Beardsall of course did that famous presentation with Swami Nathan at um, Smack Dublin where he sang his approach to the management of subacute PE but this is an update because things have moved on, times have changed. So Dan's done a really nice post that takes you through how you make the clinical decisions. Because although the algorithms are out there, the idea, or certainly the reality of making decisions around things like thrombolysis in the emergency department when you're stood at the end of the bed, and there are multiple different factors which may affect your decision-making. So things like the bleeding risk, the clinical trajectory, the thrombus burden, whether or not they're hypoxic, whether or not they're cardiovascularly unstable, and what does that mean? What does the echo show? And I actually think Dan's taken us through this and the evidence behind it. And the conclusion really is that these are not always simple decisions. In fact, they're rarely simple decisions. And what you need is an expert decision maker who understands the evidence and who can make a balanced judgment. And in particular, and often now it's a genuine thing that we do, a shared decision between the clinicians and the various different tribes and different teams of clinicians and also the patient. So there's a really great case there. I'd strongly recommend you read it because my personal view is that when I'm in the research room and I'm making difficult decisions about who to thrombolize, I think going back to that and understanding it and getting a better perspective of what it is that's affecting my judgment will be important. Now, we've also got three great posts talking about the USEM conference themselves. Go and have a look and they'll tell you the highlights of the conference that we experienced. It was a lot of fun. Most of those are done by Chris Gray, uh, one of the team uh, who's done some brilliant write-ups, actually. He will also mention the fact that the St. Emelins team, well, members of the St. Emelins team joined the Royal College of Emergency Medicine Sim team and entered the European Simulation Cup and yay, we won, which it was a lot of fun. It's not terribly serious, but it was a really great competition with, I think, about 14 teams. 
culminating in a major instance simulation. And we were delighted and proud to win alongside our colleagues from Florence. It's actually a team of junior doctors from Florence who performed magnificently. Um, we had such good fun. And if you go and have a look at the website, you'll see the photo that we took at the end, which just epitomizes the welcome that we got in USEM, the support and the amazing ability of the people who put that sim competition together. Now, it will happen again in Prague next year. So if you're interested in applying or interested in getting, I strongly recommend you do. A lot of fun. Go for it. Um, I also had a presentation up there. I talked about the use of narrative learning and storytelling in emergency medicine. Again, it's it's not a hard topic. It's not a hard clinical topic like Dan's, but I'm a great believer that if we want to engage with people and we want to have our learners understand the importance and the relevance and really get enthused about what we teach, then we really need to embrace the idea of telling stories. Case reports in the literature are dismissed now as terrible ways to educate. And there's, there's a reason for that, you know, plural of anecdotes, not data and all that. However, if you want people to listen, then our minds are still at that stage that we're sat around a campfire before the written word existed. And if you can tell a story, you can engage with people. Now, what I've done on the blog post, and if you want to go and have a look, is talk about why that is and what the science behind it is. And there's a fantastic couple of videos there. I've got to say, I've, I've used a lot of it from a chap called Jonathan Gottschall, who wrote a great book called The Storytelling Animal. I'd strongly recommend you do that. And I've got his TED Talk linked in on the site. But there's a beautiful little video there from Haider and Simmel. I would strongly, I can't tell you what the answer is. I can't tell you what it's about because you need to go and watch it. But I promise you, if you watch this video, you will suddenly understand why story is important and why you are a storytelling animal. And you as a teacher, as an educator, need to understand that and embrace it as a teaching strategy. So honestly, it's changed the way that I've thought about how we do education and it's helped me understand why some of our blog posts work really well. So go and have a look at those. The USEM was fantastic. Then we've got an amazing post which has been really interesting and has been shared hugely across the planet actually um, on the management of sick neonates. Now I have said for a long period of time that neonates are not human. They are strange beasts whose physiology is different to us. Their hearts work differently. Their lungs work differently. Drugs are bizarre in them. I mean let's face it they do weird stuff with that. And they scare people. Now, they probably shouldn't. Neonates, we've all been one. And it's quite an important phase of life. And it's also a risky phase of life. And if you're an emergency physician, then you really need to know the basics. Well, I say the basics. You need to have a good understanding of how to manage neonates because you may well be asked to do so. Now, I'm fortunate enough to work in a paediatric emergency department in a big paediatric hospital. And so I have on-hand paediatricians all the time, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, all of whom have done specialist neonatal training. My world is quite easy in that respect. But I also work in the adult department, and it's not uncommon for us to have a precipitous delivery in the ED. Now, both of these things, so my experience of working in peds is very different when I'm in adults. I'm actually more worried about the neonates when I'm working in the adult department, paradox. There's an amazing post from Natalie here that talks about how we approach children and how we work with them and how we understand 
the basics. So she talks about this in, in great terms. She's used this analogy of the micro machines. I don't know whether these are little cars that you can um, play with as your kid. And she talks about unboxing them. So that's the idea of the precipitous delivery, exactly what I was talking about. She talks about why they need fueling differently and how they have problems with glucose metabolism. They have problems with the guts, if you don't know it. So what's the exhaust system? And they have problems with the engine, spotting those cardiac problems in young prem babies. And then a whole bunch of other stuff. This is a really nice way of approaching neonatal emergencies and is particularly relevant to anybody who doesn't deal with neonates on a regular basis. And that happens. They present all over the place. So definitely read that. Also applicable to anybody working in primary care or in, in other environments where you just might get the knock on the door and go, do you know what? There's a one-weeker. They don't look well. That is a scary moment. Then we've got to talk about the monkeypox. Not heard about monkeypox before. I must admit, neither had I. It is a rash and so it is a virus, a genus orthopox. There you go. Related to things like smallpox and cowpox, bizarrely. Now, the reason why we're talking about it is because there's cases in the UK that have been imported. Um, the actual diagnosis, I think, goes back to the 1960s when it first appeared. But there is an outbreak going on at the moment. And there's some pictures up there and some guides about how you spot it and what to do if you do. In reality, it's mostly a self-limiting illness unless you're immunocompromised. But clearly, because of the media interest and because it's got a great name, I think anybody who's dealing with travellers or who've been in areas which have already been affected by the monkeypox, I think you need to do this. And I think if memory serves me right, I think a couple of the cases in the UK were also in health workers. So we are at risk ourselves. I've also been told that if you have been immunised against smallpox, which I was because I'm very old, then you're protected. So again, there's some ideas and strategies and thoughts about how you might manage it if it comes to your department from Yanis Bionbe, who is our expert in international and tropical disease. Now we're back to Ashley Lieb again, who's been busy on the blog this month. She talks to us about the Resus TO conference, where this was organised by Chris Hicks in Toronto. Really interesting approach about how they did this conference with a combination of knowledge and then building through the day so that you talk about the, the project and then you build on it through workshops and you build on it through simulation type approaches. I really like this as an idea. Chris Hicks is an amazing clinician and the team of people he put together for that are fantastic. So again, two big conferences this, this month. USEM and ResusTO, both reviewed on the blog and both with the nuggets and the best parts of learning that you can pick up from us. Oh, I said two. I actually meant three. I went over to the EMS gathering in Ireland, in Cork Island. Now, I went there originally in 2015. It is the most amazingly friendly and really quite... Oh, it's difficult to put into words. The Irish conferences are always fantastic because you get such a wonderful welcome. But there were some amazing things they did there. They have this concept of what's called learning with leisure. And they split their days between what may sometimes look like formalised lectures, as you like. But also, they're really into the fact that if you want people to learn, you have to give them an experience. So they took a half day where we were spread all over Cork. So if you wanted to know about airport emergencies, they took you to the airport and did it there. If you wanted to know about extrication, I went and worked with the attack team. Oh, I didn't work with them. I went as an observer. What a team. What an amazing course that is. What an amazing group of people doing extrications um, down at the dockside. Other people went off and did human factors. Other people went off and did worked with the Coast Guard. Um, it was just the most tremendous thing. It was a bit of a choose-your-own-adventure event. 
and just tremendous. I'd also like to particularly draw out one incredible learning experience, which was emotionally challenging for everybody in the room, but was beautifully and wonderfully done. The, the conference itself was set in a theatre. The, the talking bits of the conference were set in this theatre. And it's an amazing venue. It's, it's a historical theatre. People like Charlie Chaplin have treaded the boards at this theatre, the Everyman Theatre in Cork. And they set up on stage a cardiac arrest scenario. But it wasn't about the ALS. It wasn't about the, the practice because the stage was split into two halves. On the left-hand side, as you looked at it, the cardiac arrest was going on. And on the right-hand side, supposedly in the other room, was the wife of the patient who was dying. And their cardiac arrest protocols were not working. And they were coming to the point where they were going to stop the resuscitation. And the focus of the event was on the interaction between the team leaders, the team, the patient, but most importantly, the patient's relative. And they acted it out on scene with a degree of theatre and emotion and engagement, which I've not seen done before. I mean, it was amazing to watch. And then following that, they did a really safe because it did induce a lot of emotions. I think it gave a lot of people flashbacks. They then did a panel discussion with a bunch of experts about how they understand the importance of those situations and how we can work together. I guess what I'm saying is this is a real conference where they think really hard about doing things differently, how they think about doing them effectively. And if you ever get the opportunity to go over there, I would. And don't get put off by the name. EMS often makes people think that this is just for people who work in the pre-hospital environment. It's not at all. It's for everybody involved in the emergency services. So that's fire, ambulance, hospitals, the Coast Guard, the RNLI, the pre-hospital response and, and the air ambulance. All of these people coming together and incredibly well supported by the people of Cork and by the government as well. I mean, we even had the Deputy Prime Minister come and speak to us on the conference. That's how well it's respected and how important it is. If you want to get a part of that, then please do go. I know nobody who has not enjoyed going to that conference. OK, I'm going to round off September with a blog post which I put together on the Zero Point Survey. So I think we're going to do a whole blog post on this later when I get hold of Cliff Reed. Because the zero point survey, the basic idea is, I'll tell you the very basics, resuscitation starts before you meet the patient. What we mean by that is resuscitation starts when you first realise that there's a patient. So when the standby phone goes, when you're tasked on your helicopter to go and fly out to them, or even when you're just running to the arrest. And those are golden minutes. And we need to think about how we really, truly, effectively use that time to prepare ourselves before we even see the patient and start the primary survey, and then how we update ourselves. So you can have a look at that blog post now, but I am, I promise I'm really gonna try and get together with Cliff to do a to do a separate podcast on that, because I think it's so important. And certainly in our practice, it's been transformative about how we manage our resource room and how we manage our sims. So that was September, a little bit longer than I anticipated, but I hope you enjoyed it. And we will hear a little bit more from the ZPS from uh, October, from the St. Emily's Live Conference and from the Teaching Co-op course in the next few months. Thank you so much for your time. Have a great day.